Well, that's nice. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to start by thanking you all for your prayers for Laura and myself. It's been a hard couple of months, but um, the Lord has been at work uh, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen? And, you, you know, you think you can't get through something, and then you come out the other side, and you realize this adversity has really taught me some new things about the Lord and deepened my faith. And so, um, over these last two or three months of her surgery and recovery, I want to tell you that my heart has been secured to the Lord in a new and deeper way. And it's best captured by the biblical phrase, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. It's an Old Testament phrase. Um, the word portion means uh, in Hebrew, much as it does in English, a part of a whole, a division or share, one's allotment or assigned amount. It can mean an individual's lot in life. Uh, it can also mean one's inheritance, like the prodigal son when he said to his dad, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, my part, my portion. So I'd like to explore this phrase, uh, the Lord is my portion this morning. And um, the Bible uses the word portion to describe allotments of land, shares of inheritances and amounts or helpings of food for various purposes, like when a sacrificed animal, a portion was kept, for the, kept separate for the priests and given to the priests. Um, much like today, when we have a meal and you're offered more food or seconds, someone might say, oh, thank you, but I've had more than my share. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've found that it's embarrassing if you go after that last portion when everybody around the table is hungry. I was in a small town in northern New York during college, a, a very loving town where we would drive a van full of students down to attend a small poor church called Old Stone Pentecostal Church. And um, again, it was a small town. Everybody knew everybody else, but a very vibrant, uh, full of the love of God town. And the pastor uh, would let me stay overnight, let us stay overnight in his home. But I remember being around his table for dinner. There were about 10 or 12 of us. And um, they were quite poor, and so I remember the mashed potatoes had been uh, kind of watered down to go as far as they could. And uh, after we'd all had our first helpings, uh, there was one hamburger left on the platter in the center of the table. And we were all kind of eyeing that hamburger uh, ominously. And the, the pastor, as a hush kind of came over the table, the pastor said, I would turn out the lights and go for that hamburger, except I fear that Jim's fork would be impaled in the back of my hand. 
Another time, our family was around the dinner table, and there was one piece of chicken left. Our kids were quite little. And being the head of the home, the priest of the home, I, I went for that piece of chicken. And little Esther got very incensed and said, Dad, you put that piece of chicken down and give it to Mom. She works much harder than you do. <laughs> So, be careful with that last helping of food. We see the phrase, the Lord is my portion, or the idea this phrase uh, conveys in several places. The first place we see it is in um, Numbers 18.20 to Aaron and the Levites, where... uh, It reads this way, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the lands apportioned to the other eleven tribes of Israel, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Jeremiah said it as well. Uh, This is from Lamentations 3.24. He said, when I remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness, this I recall to mind, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease and his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Asaph was uh, a worship leader in Israel, and he wrote about 12 of the 150 psalms in our Bibles. And uh, in Psalm 73, he said, Whom have I of heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. But no one said it more than David. And here are a few scriptures where David said, The Lord is my portion. Psalm 119, 57, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep thy word. And then again, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And then in Psalm 142.5, the Lord is my portion in the land of the living. And I underlined on this slide, in the land of the living, because that captures what I'm trying to say this morning, and that is, Uh, Through this adversity, um, it seems that the Lord has become my portion, not just for the next life, but in this life, a sense that he and I are in the yoke together, and we're, we're, we're going through life together. Backing up to my thank you for all your prayers for, for me and Laura, um, And Nancy, I just resonate so much with what you said. There were times where I was just had no energy to pray, and yet I knew you were praying, and uh, it sustained me. It really 
gave me freedom. I was okay to not feel this pressure uh, to pray when I didn't have the energy because I knew others were praying with me. And it's such a freeing and such a beautiful thing. So the Lord is my portion. Now, do we see it in the New Testament? I think there is one place that it uh, comes to mind, and that's where Mary and Martha are having the dinner for Jesus. And listen, this is very familiar, but listen to it with this in mind, this idea of portion or the Lord is my portion. As they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, Jesus, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen, and here it is, Mary has chosen the good part, portion, the good share, which shall not be taken from her. So again, this notion of the Lord is my portion. Well, even in the midst of getting this far in my study of this phrase, I really wasn't clear in my mind, what does it mean, the Lord is my portion? Um, I wanted to find a definition. And so here's one that I found for your thought. One commentator said it this way. When a biblical writer says, the Lord is my portion, he means that God is the source of all his security happiness and blessing he's content with all that the Lord is and provides he has the best inheritance imaginable and does not seek any possession or comfort outside of God riches honor friends and fame nothing is as valuable as being intimately connected with God the psalmist writes my flesh and heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If God is our portion, we need nothing else. I still treasure my marriage. I treasure my life, but nothing compares to the treasure of knowing the Lord, that pearl of great price for which we are willing and do sell everything else. So I would like to highlight this morning four ways or practices that I believe David, King David, uh, used to make the Lord his portion. First of all, David knew who God truly is, and he delighted in him. Second, he continually made the Lord his refuge. Third, the greater the adversity, the more he coached his own soul. And fourth, he was fanatical about declaring the wonders and goodness of God to everyone. Let's take a look at these in turn. First of all, the David made the Lord his portion. When a person says, I'm a person of faith, if you say, are you a Christian? And they say, well, I'm a person of faith. Or, um, 
or they label themselves as I'm a very spiritual person. What that translates to in my mind is that that person feels the freedom to construct their view of God and they're, uh, uh, they're busy uh, determining or creating their own belief system, but they're not going to confine themselves to any particular religious tradition or faith. I was at a wedding one time where the young couple, I knew they didn't know the Lord, and um, this was not a wedding I officiated at, but um, they, they incorporated just about every sacred tradition from every religious tradition you can imagine. You know, they had shawls, and they had uh, a smashing of the goblets, and they you know, I, I don't remember if there was communion, but I remember thinking, you've just taken the most dramatic wedding ceremony, ceremonial uh, event from every tradition and just crash them. They may have even had their dogs bring the ring down. I don't know about that, but I have a wedding coordinator named Laura who, if a couple says they're going to have their dogs bring the wedding rings down, she's out. <laughs> she's just out. So, anyway... The truth is, we don't get to decide who God is. Amen? He knows who he is, and it, he's, he reveals who he is, and it's our job to uh, accept who he is. Um, it's very important, then, that we take careful note of how God introduces himself to mankind or how he describes himself to us in his various revelations. So I'd like to look at those together. The first instance is at the burning bush where God reveals his name. He says to Moses, I am who I am. Let me read a little bit of that passage to you. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, who, What is his name? Or what, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my memorial name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. I am who I am. Well, what does that mean? What has God revealed himself, or in what way has he described himself in those words, in that memorial name? Well, I think uh, embedded in that uh, Name is, are the ideas that I am holy, that I am uh, eternal, that I am self-existent. In other words, I am, I am all I need to be. Um, those kinds of messages, incomprehensible and so on. The second instance is when the Ten Commandments were giving were given. And uh, this is in Exodus 20, verses uh, 
5 and 6 I want to read to you. This is uh, as he delivers the third of the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on to say, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So he begins to show a little bit of, of who he is. He, he introduces the idea that he's a possessive God and a covenant God, and if you're going to be in covenant with me, here are the terms. I will own you, I will possess you, but if you obey me and love me, I will shower my loving kindness upon you. And so in this instance, he reveals the terms of being in covenant relationship with him. I want you to pay a special attention to this third instance. And this is after the golden calf incident, and Moses has cut out two new uh, tablets of stone and he's gone up the mountain again and uh, he is uh, doing what the Lord told him getting ready to, re to uh, do a reprint of the Ten Commandments and the Lord spontaneously in the passage Moses is not asking the Lord for anything but the Lord spontaneously opens his heart in a in a very self-revealing way it says this and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. To me, this passage is important because... It, it's front-loaded. The Lord front-loaded this passage with who he is in his love. He's obviously not a God who will uh, cater to fools. He has no time for fools. But for those who are sincere and pursue him, listen again to what he says or look again at the slide. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He, he reveals who he is in a powerfully tender way in this passage. Jonah, when he um, preaches to Nineveh, you remember the story of Jonah? He, he runs from the Lord's commission gets uh, thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale, ends up where the Lord told him to go. And he preaches to Nineveh, and this very pagan, populous city repents. And here's what Jonah says. He, he sort of rebukes the Lord, and he says, Please, Lord, this, 
Was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents regarding calamity. So uh, Jonah was a little bit bitter there, wasn't he? But, but he, he absolutely knew the heartbeat of God. He absolutely knew that tender, uh, affectionate love of God uh, that motivates God's heart. As if these four examples aren't enough, here's another one, and this one is so powerful. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And here we'll see not his name, not his terms. Uh, we will see his nature, but we'll also see what he delights in. And so let's, let's look at this. Thus says the Lord. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who, what? Exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things declares the Lord. So now we have a picture of his heart. It's a heart of uh, graciousness, of compassion. But I want to zero in on this word loving kindness for a bit. Uh, because in some ways, I think this word describes the Lord in one word, best of all. Loving kindness is from the Hebrew word hesed, and it's like the New Testament word grace. Um, grace is such a big word. It's got so many meanings that it's hard to sometimes really get a hold of it in our spirits. Well, hesed in the Old Testament is the same kind of word. It can mean mercy, love, loyal love, compassion, faithfulness. It involves both a feeling or a state of being and action, uh, it means tender love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate action toward the one loved. This word is saying that God is tenderly affectionate toward each one of you. Isn't that beautiful? That he is, do, do you believe that the Lord is affectionate, has affection for you. Um, I honestly struggle with that a little bit, but I do have a human illustration. Um, when Laura was recovering and, and virtually helpless for six weeks or so, um, you know, I was her full-time caretaker, caregiver. And you caregivers know how consuming that can be and how worn out you can get. Um, and 95% of the time, serving Laura was an absolute joy and an absolute honor. But there were a few days in there where I would crater and become very mad. 
and I would, I would just go silent. Um, and it wasn't so much mad at her. She didn't do anything. It was just mad. I was just mad that I was in this caretaker, 24-7 caretaker role with no rest, no time for myself, and so on. So 95% of the time, I would walk in the room and just be overwhelmed with a sense of tenderness and affection and love for Laura. But that 5% of the time, I would come in and serve her logistically just as well, but she could sense immediately that I was not happy, that I was angry. And, you know, can I say I was loving her at that moment simply because I was serving her? I don't think so. I think to fully love her, I needed that tender affection um, like when a grandchild runs into the room and your face lights up, uh, the adult's face lights up. I think, I want to believe that that's how God feels about us, uh, that he delights in us, and so on. Well, you can see here that the English Standard Version translates uh, hesed, steadfast love, and that emphasizes what? It emphasizes God's faithfulness to love us. Uh, the New Living Translation uh, uses unfailing love, the reliability of God's love. The uh, New International Version uh, emphasizes the bigness of God's love by putting a word like great in front of love in some cases. The King James Version uses mercy for said, um, emphasizing God's favor and pity on us and our dependence on him and his benevolent action toward us as an inferior or in an in a um, inferior position but i like the new king james version and the new american standard way of translating has said which is loving kindness um, i like it because i think it's more true to the rest of scripture for example, let's turn to Ephesians 2 um, and look at a passage here. Ephesians 2. This again is a very familiar passage, um, and it says this. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, raised us up with him and seated us with him in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, in the Greek, that little word in is, a, of course, a preposition and it takes the dative case which can mean a lot of different things, um, but it tends to mean that things like uh, surpassing riches of his grace, which emanate or come from his kindness, or his grace because of his kindness, or it can denote a, a fixed state 
of place, like uh, his grace rests in his ocean of kindness might be another way to see it. It's as if grace is his means of loving us, but his motive for loving us is his kindness. Does that make sense to you? And so to me, this is a huge revelation that at the very core of of God's nature is uh, this heartbeat of kindness, this this desire to, to shower kindness on his people. And this, I think, is what David understood so completely that caused him to say in Psalm 63, uh, 63.3, Thy loving kindness is better than life. David chose to make the Lord his portion in this life. He delighted in God, and he delighted in God's word. He pursued righteousness out of love for God and believed that as he practiced these things, God delighted in him as well. He made his, the Lord his portion in this life, he knew who God truly is. David also made the Lord his refuge. In Psalm 142, he says, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my troubles before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. This is a psalm of lament, and it's full of words like complaint, trouble, overwhelmed, persecuted. He says, my soul is in prison. And in one line, he says, no one cares for my soul. I did the best to make the Lord my refuge before Laura's surgery. I sent out an email about six weeks before her surgery to my family, and um, I said, would you like to join me in fasting and prayer on Mondays for Laura's surgery, uh, as well as my dad's salvation? And I created about 12 prayer points that they could pray for each situation. And My family joined, some friends heard about it and joined as well. And so by the time of the surgery, I just, I felt so close to the Lord and so in the yoke with him and so safe uh, and so much in his secret place, if you will. He that dwelleth in the secret place shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I felt so uh, much in a cave with the Lord of, of refuge. But I, and things initially went well, but then several things happened that were not good. They were, um, uh, there were mistakes made, there was uh, selfishness. Some people were just dumb, frankly, and self-centered and abusive decisions were made in her regards. I found I couldn't totally protect her, that you know, her pain was out of control for a couple weeks, and um, over and over people seemed insensitive to that. And so one night I was just in despair. I, I didn't blame the Lord. I just 
felt like, why can't people do their jobs? You know, and there was an expletive in there, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but I called my son-in-law, Stuart, because I trust Stuart. I trust his uh, walk with the Lord. And, and while he ministered to me, the Lord gave me a word. And the word was, why are you surprised at the fight? Why are you surprised that the fight still rages outside the cave? Out, outside the cave? Um, and I learned that even if you're in the refuge of the Lord, the minute you step out of that cave, the battle is still raging. And I, I, I realized that I had made the mistake of thinking that if I'm uh, in, in the refuge of the Lord, that, there, that it would be easy street out there, that there wouldn't be troubles uh, and, and mistakes and problems. The fight never stops, does it? But we can take refuge in the Lord, and uh, even though the warfare is still going on outside. I want to read uh, Psalm 62, 5 through 8, as kind of a way to close out this point. Psalm 62, 5 through 8. My soul... Wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Isn't that beautiful? Are you guys still with me? Am I wearing you out? I hope not. David made the Lord his refuge, his hiding place, his safe retreat. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. David also practiced this, that the tougher things got the more he coached his own soul. Isn't that a great way to think about it? That the tougher things get, the more we've got to speak to our own soul about the goodness of the Lord. And David seemed to be an expert at this. Psalm 42.5, Why so downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Psalm 62.5, my soul wait in silence for God only. He only is my rock and my salvation. I shall not be shaken. And Psalm 132.2, surely I have quieted and composed my soul like a child weaned that rests against its mother. This little phrase came to me, and uh, for those of you who are in the midst of huge battles, true faith uh, expresses faith when you feel no faith. True faith expresses faith when you feel no faith. And I think that's what David trained his soul to do. You, know, you remember that m many, if not all, of his psalms end on a high note. 
right? I will again praise him. He takes that stand no matter how he feels. And uh, that's a valuable lesson for us. So here's a question. How hard are you and how hard am I intentionally working to discipline our souls to have confidence in God and praise him in moments of our greatest despair and doubt? This point of the tougher things get, the more we need to coach our own souls was too important to leave out of this message. David did that. He was showing us the way. The last point is David made the Lord his portion in this life by being fanatical about declaring the wonders and goodness of God to everyone. I love Psalm 34, 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David wanted to uh, praise the Lord in the great congregation. You see the verse here. O Lord, thou knowest I have not hidden thy righteousness in my heart. I have spoken of thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. If you surveyed the rest of Psalms, you would see that he wanted to proclaim the goodness of God in the great congregation to like-minded brothers, to the next generation, to the nations of the world, as well as to his own soul. I want to tell you that uh, Joe Beck, our brother over here, has had a rough week. Uh, he's been to the hospital a couple, three times. Um, the first incident, he, 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 he really feels he came close to death in not being able to breathe while he was calling for an ambulance. Um, so he had a near-death experience. Um, he's transitioning to an assisted living situation. While he was in the hospital, and once that became known, Dave Troutman and Joe's sister went to his apartment and cleaned it up and closed down his Internet and his TV and, and uh, got him ready for the move. And then the move to this new facility fell through. And so Joe had to return to his apartment with just the barest of furniture. Uh, I don't even know if you had a bed, Joe, or a chair, or you, you have a bed now. But um, anyway, he, he felt alone. And to top it all off, the EMSA drivers lost his boots. And so I just had this picture in my mind of Joe sitting in a solitary chair in his apartment with no, no TV, no friends, no internet, barefoot, no bed to get into. <laughs> I thought, the poor guy. And yet, Joe was telling me over and over during the week that he was getting very aggressive about witnessing for the Lord. Isn't that fantastic? He was telling people, you got to straighten up and fly right. You know? And, and Joe is surrounded by some rough cobs. And so, uh, way to go, Joe. And we're proud of you, brother. And let's keep, all of us keep sharing the Lord and the goodness of God. 
So in conclusion, I'm wondering if um, any of us would like to stand for a prayer to take in these lessons from David's life. The lesson that at his core, God is loving kindness, that God is our refuge and our strong tower, that the greater the adversity, the more important it is to coach our own souls, that we must be fanatics about extolling the Lord, both personally and publicly. If the Lord spoke to you this morning, would you stand with me? I just want to offer a prayer. It could be one of those points that you feel is for you, or it could be just the whole concept of wanting to stand and say, yes, Lord, you are my portion in this life. You are my portion. Or I want to make you my portion. So would you stand if, if you'd like to do that for this prayer? Thank you, Lord. Father, we sometimes cling to this life too desperately. And, uh, but we want to be those disciples, those followers of you that can honestly say, the Lord is my portion in this life. You are our treasure, O oh God. You are our pearl of great price. You have the preeminence in our life, Lord. And we give you all the glory and all the praise. And those parts of our hearts that are not fully conformed to your will, we, we lift them to you and pray that you would cause us to uh, be like David, that we would practice these things to make you our portion, our consuming passion in this life, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the lessons that you teach in, advers in adversity. So we praise you for your word. We praise you for this message. We pray that uh, you would be our portion. You are our portion in Jesus, Jesus' wonderful name. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen.